today my guest is Radhika Dutt. Radhika is the author of Radical Product Thinking, the new mindset for innovating smarter, which has been translated into several languages. She's an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in five acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. She advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products and create a fundamental change. Radhika has built products in a wide range of industries, including broadcast, media, telecom, advertising technology, government, consumer apps, robotics, and even wine. Welcome back, Radhika. It's so great to talk with you again. Thank you, Agaida, for having me again. It's great to be here. Uh, this time, so... Uh, for whoever is listening, um, last time we talked about uh, OKRs and how they can arm uh, the organization. And this time we have uh, also a very juicy and uh, let's say complex topic, but incredibly important, which is uh, ethics in product and why is that important. And Radhika is here today uh, to also speak about this, give her opinion and um give us some solutions and some hope. <laughs> so um, this conversation comes from a blog post, uh, from, from your personal blog post uh, about this topic. And I think you have already uh, uploaded a couple of blog posts on, the, on this. Um, and let me start by saying that uh, one of the, so you say that you have some AI entrepreneurs and investors that uh, uh, currently they, they acknowledge the that AI have some worms, uh, and that worms may arm some people. Uh, but the, what it is advocated is that uh, we can use AI to iterate uh, over time and uh, solve these possible worms. So what do you think on this? Let's start with a little bit more background in terms of, uh, you know, where this quote came from. People like Reid Hoffman uh, from LinkedIn and uh, Sam Altman, OpenAI, uh, they've been acknowledging that AI will cause some harms to some people, uh, but overall that it's going to make things so much better for humanity. And this idea that, you know, yes, there'll be some harms to some people, but yeah, we'll just iterate and make things better. I mean, it just feels disingenuous at this point. Let's look at track record of companies and what they've been able to do so far. So the example that we have in front of us is Meta. And, you know, for years, we've known the harms and the unfortunate side effects of Facebook. And, you know, have we been able to fix the issues so far? Mm -hmm. Not at all, right? Like YouTube has also, we know that it leads to this rabbit hole effect and causes radicalization. Have we been able to fix it? Not at all. It's not that iteration helps us actually solve problems. So we've proven this before. So this idea that, you know, we'll just iterate and fix these problems really feels disingenuous. And so that's the first piece. But the second piece, I think, you know, when we know that we can't really fix these things through iteration, the question then is, well, why then are we taking such a callous approach saying, well, there'll be some harms to some people? I mean, what it reminds me of is, you know, that movie Shrek, where you have Lord Farquhar talking to all of his subjects saying, well, some of you may die, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. You know, you sound magnanimous saying that, like you're being so brave, right? Well, who are you to make that decision for people? 
Uh, and so, you know, that really, but it is that entitled attitude with which people like Sam Altman and Reid Hoffman say this, that, well, some of you, it, it may harm, but, well, that's a risk I'm willing to take. Why? Because we need to look at who will it harm and who will it help. When we think about all the side effects of uh, AI, all of these unintended consequences, typically, things like, you know, misinformation, it harms marginalized people because mm -hmm. it exacerbates things like xenophobia. Uh, it makes people afraid of immigration. It makes people af afraid of, you know, trans rights and, oh my goodness, what is that going to mean for me? And things like that, right? Like all of these, all of the risk of misinformation is concentrated on people who are marginalized. And so, you know, when we look at the circle that we happily live in, our bubble, like for Reid Hoffman and Sam Altman, their bubble is mostly people who fall in a group that are typically not in that marginalized category. And mm -hmm. so it's easy to say that, well, you know, for this group way out there that I don't know about, you know, imagine, for example, um, there is a nuclear power plant and someone tells you, well, we're going to put this nuclear power plant on this remote island and there is a roughly 10% chance that it might obliterate and kill everyone on the island. And you say, you know, 10% chance, that doesn't sound too bad. It's like this island really far away. But now imagine someone tells you, I'm putting this nuclear power plant next to your house and, you know, there's a 10% chance that it might obliterate everyone in your neighborhood. Well, now all of a sudden that sounds outrageous, like how dare you, right? And that is what's happening. Like all of these people that it's going to harm, they're not within that bubble that uh, these people who are developing these products are most likely to harm. And so, well, it's easy to take this callous attitude and say, oh, well, there'll be harms, but we'll fix it <laughs> afterwards. And that's what we never get to doing. When you're saying, uh, you're telling the examples of uh, companies like Meta, YouTube, that uh, have, have caused arms and uh, radicalization of societies, can you be a bit more specific and give uh, uh, examples uh, so people can uh, maybe so yeah. illustrate? Some of the known effects of... Well, with Facebook, we, of course, know how much misinformation gets spread, right? Like the idea is that um, there is the like button, which gives you variable rewards. So that's the hook of the like button. Every time you put out a post, you have no idea how many uh, likes you're going to get. So it keep, makes you keep checking. And then the kind of information or the kind of post that gets more likes is obviously the stuff that is more polarizing. And so there is always this uh, need to one-up the other person in terms of posts that get more likes. And the way you do that is by posting things that are more and more radical. And so it's been shown to create more polarization. Uh, if we look at YouTube, for example, there have been studies that show that there's this rabbit hole effect where, you know, if you look up dieting advice, for example, and you keep viewing a few more videos, the next few videos that you're shown are the ones that increase engagement. And each subsequent videos is increasingly more radical to the point where, you know, it's basically encouraging you to develop uh, eating disorders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, this is the kind of radicalization effect that we've known to, uh, yeah, we've known happens um, with a lot of these platforms. Mm -hmm. Exactly, but these these platforms, uh, they are 
OKR, the objective uh, that they are measuring is the amount of time that people spend in the platform. So uh, they are kind of um, like in the game that uh, everything is, is allowed. They will uh, create these hooks and they have, the, they have all the interest to create these hooks. That's so true. And I think this relates to our previous episode, right, where we set OKRs and we measure success by a certain metric, which is, well, in this case, for example, user engagement, it can be revenues, uh, maximizing and optimizing revenues through user engagement and getting people to stay um, uh, for the longest amount of time and continue watching one video after next, etc. Right. And this sort of an OKR then creates really perverse incentives for us, perverse incentives also for the algorithms. Mm -hmm. But I think we've seen this to happen over and over where when we just measure success based on uh, you know popular metrics like this without thinking about the consequences we know it causes these perverse effects and you know it's not just in the case of youtube and meta but this has happened elsewhere we know examples in the us for example where with healthcare this has happened where doctors when they are um, given incentives based on revenues uh, then they try to maximize revenues doing more healthcare uh, solutions that actually bring in higher revenues. So this was related to hernia operations, for example, where they were taking a more complicated approach to hernia surgery, which has been shown to have, you know, more uh, consequences, like bad consequences for patients. But they charge a higher rate. And so very often, like doctors, ended up using this on, on patients. So this was one example in healthcare where, you know, the OKRs that we set cause these perverse incentives. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, like we talked about the RPT or radical product thinking approach, one of the first things, if we want to build ethical products, is measuring success, not just based on these popular metrics, but actually saying, Thinking, but actually thinking about your product as a mechanism for creating the change you want to bring to the world and then deriving metrics from your vision and strategy. That's really how you overcome these perverse incentives. And the way you measure success is by whether you're creating the change you intended. You know, this whole attitude that we often have in industry where we say, oh, whoops, we created um, consequences we didn't intend. Like, you know, that's not okay for us to say, oh, whoops, there were, there, were, there were consequences afterwards. There were so many things we could have foreseen based on just, you know, what we were measuring. And so we have to rethink what do we measure and how we measure it based on being vision-driven and thinking about product in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the questions that some people might uh, ask is that um, as product managers is, well, I don't think that is my role to play to care about that part because uh, maybe the um, regulations uh, should intervene in these parts or maybe people can choose which products they want to use and then it and the market will uh, um, market will uh, ended up by uh, showing that products that follow ethics are the ones that are more used uh, because 
people will would choose those ones. Yeah. You know, it's such great points, right? Let's talk about both of those. The first one you mentioned was regulations. And the second is about customers having the power to choose. Let's start with regulations, right? It is, again, disingenuous of companies to say, well, we'll wait for regulations. There need to be regulations. Sam Altman, for example, has said often that, oh, yes, we need better regulations. Uh, Facebook has said that for ages. But why do companies say that, but then not do anything? It's because they know regulations take a very, very long time uh, to be enacted. So if we look at environmental pollution, for example, you know, back in the 1600s in London, London was already polluted and buildings were black because of all the coal that was being burned. People were, you know, had lung issues in the 1800s to the point where, you know, lung issues was the major cause of death in London. And so everyone knew it was because of pollution. Mm -hmm. Yet it took 300 years for laws to be enacted with teeth for any law to have an effect on pollution and curbing pollution. So people know that when they say, well, people need to, the government needs to regulate things so that we'll do things differently, they know that that essentially means, well, I can do whatever I want in the meanwhile. <laughs> so then the second um, excuse is often that, well, people can choose, you know, if they, they can choose, like you said, ethical products. But again, this is also ingenious, disingenuous because the ability for people to vote with a dollar hasn't really existed for a long time. You know, let's look at the example of Google and the fact that you have Google Docs, right? If you feel like, well, Google collects my data and it's not ethical and therefore I'm not going to use Google or Google Docs, that's a really hard stand to take for most consumers. There aren't that many competitive products. Like you essentially have large monopolies. And so you often don't have a choice as a consumer to be able to say, well, I'll vote with my dollar. So then the question is, well, who has power? And the answer to that, fortunately, and this is the uplifting part that gives me hope, is that we as product people, we actually hold the power mm -hmm. that we can choose. It's not just product people. It's, it's all the engineers, the people working on products, right? We have some level of privilege. We can choose where we want to work. Essentially, we're able to vote with our labor for the world that we want to create. And so this is, I think, a really important point for us all to realize that we, first of all, have this power. And so I think like that Spider-Man movie goes, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> I think once we recognize that we have this power, now it's time to choose, well, how do we want to use that power? Right. And I think um, the way I look at uh, our role and this power that we have, it reminds me a lot of the role of doctors, you know, doctors look at patients and say, I see you have this problem. I'm going to prescribe this medicine. And after that, they don't say, well, you know, good luck. You know, whatever <laughs> happens to you, it's your problem after that. They take responsibility for the user's well-being, right? And so we, as product people, we need to take a similar attitude. Today, what we do do is we say, I see you as a user. You have this problem. You have this pain. I'm going to solve it with this medicine that is my product, but after that, what the attitude we've taken is, well, you can choose to do harm or do good. You know, how this product affects your life, it's all up to you. That's not in my hands, right? 
And that's not an attitude we can take. Like there is something we have to recognize that if we have the power to build products, we have to take the Hippocratic oath of product where we choose to not do harm. So that's the mm -hmm. first thing. And maybe as a next step, we can talk about like, okay, what do you do then? Like, what mm -hmm. does it actually mean to embrace the Hippocratic oath? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can, uh, uh, let me rephrase this. When you are referring here to the hypocriticals, this is uh, an idea that I've already uh, read on your blog and I think it's very interesting. Uh, but what came into my mind was that in the case of doctors, they are actually, uh, first of all, the consequence of a bad medicine is very, uh, like the cause and effect is very usually um, quick. And they are, uh, by law, they like it's part of their job to make good to to the patient. So if they prescribe something that makes the patient uh, have something bad, then they will get sued uh, and they don't want that. So these consequences of their actions is more, uh, um, it's, 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 it, it exists. And in case of product people, it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's such a great point, right? And so I think there are two aspects to this. One is, I think you made two really important points. The first was about the timeline, that as a product person, you may build a product, but you don't see its consequences until much later. So one example of this is the like button in Facebook, that the creators of the like button you know, they much later regretted having created it. They realized the effect and the harm it has done to society and the polarization, and they went on to regret it later. Both of them later quit Facebook, and now they talk about ethics and product and how important that is and how important ethics is in design, right? And so one thing I'll say is, you know, regardless of the consequences, whether they're um, obvious right away or they happen later it's not just that we do good because there is a risk for being sued i think most of us overall if we're given a choice we would rather do good in the world than leave a legacy of having been the super villain <laughs> like none of us sets out uh like you know dr evil and austin powers and goes like oh you know i want to do all this evil in the world right yeah. uh, i think most of us want to do good and so if we take that as the assumption the I think what happens is we don't recognize how far we are falling. I think what happens often is we think of ethics as, you know, we'll one day be asked to be a hero where if I'm asked to do something blatantly bad, I will bravely like a hero step up and say, no, we're not going to do that. Like that is our idea of ethics, right? Whereas the reality is, that's not what actually happens. There's no one telling you to do blatantly bad things. Uh, that, you know, what actually happens is we just fall a little bit at a time. And I want to give the example of this Russian journalist where, you know, she felt like uh, she was asked by the Kremlin over time to make, you know, just small decisions to spread a little bit of Russian propaganda on news for a long period of time. 
And so each time, you know, she chose to do it and she didn't realize how far she had fallen. It was only when Russia invaded Ukraine that she decided to quit as news anchor. And she said, this is not what I'm about. Like she felt like, you know, you just don't realize how far you've fallen. Mm-hmm. So the way I, I, I think about this in the radical Prague thinking way is if you think about priorities, right, um, where prioritization in the radical product thinking way, you think about it on an X and a Y axis. Your Y axis is, is this good for the vision or not? And the X axis is, is this good for survival or not? And so sometimes you choose to take on vision debt where it's good for survival, but it's not good for the vision. And so you do a little bit at a time. And so, you know, you might choose to do little things that accumulate over time. And every time you take on a little bit of vision debt, just like you said, you don't see the consequences right away necessarily. You see the consequences much later and by then it's too late. So I think the big question for a product person, for every engineer out there, every designer listening is, you know, how often do you keep track of the vision debt that you're taking on? That's a key thing you can do about ethics, right? Like think about all these priority decisions you're making. You'll never be asked to do one blatantly bad thing. It's just lots of small decisions. And eventually you realize, oh my gosh, this is what we've done. The the idea of using the, the framework, the radical processing framework allows to have uh, an external view over the decisions that we are uh, have made or we are making now. And sometimes that, as you said, that might imply um, having a backlog of uh, vision depth that we are we are now willing to do to do this. Not so not let's not say ethical, but we are willing to to do these actions that will allow uh, make us buy us survival time. But then we look again and say like, okay, now it's time to prioritize maybe things that are more in light to what is the vision of our product that we, uh, that's why we started this company for the, for the first place. And sometimes people even forget about it. Yeah. And, you know, that's a really interesting point about vision debt, right? Like we think sometimes that I'll take on vision debt, eventually I'll pay this back. The reality is, you know, for all the good intentions you have, sometimes you never get a chance to pay back that vision debt. Like, and I'll give you an example of that, right? So when WhatsApp was founded, mm-hmm. it was founded by uh, Jan Kum, and he was Ukrainian, and he actually founded WhatsApp with the idea that, you know, I want to create an app where you have uh, freedom of speech and you can actually have a private conversation. So you would think that he would have protected that, right? But there was a decision to be made, and this is where he took on vision debt. So he decided that to make the app spread faster among people, that every time someone downloaded the app and started using it, he would uh, suck all of their contact list into their servers so that he could show you who else was on WhatsApp. And then this way, everyone uh, would be notified. And then this way, it helped WhatsApp spread much faster. But the vision debt that he took on was essentially now, he was collecting metadata of who else is in your contact list. And, you know, all this metadata about who you're calling or who you're texting. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, 
when Facebook acquired WhatsApp for 19 billion, it was because of that metadata, right? That metadata is the stuff that Facebook could never get, uh, get hold of, knowing offline from their Facebook platform who's calling who, who's talking to whom, and for how long, what does that whole social network look like outside of Facebook in terms of actually people you have close ties to? Mm -hmm. That is the kind of super valuable data. And essentially, Jan Kuhn took on vision debt and could never repay it. So in the end, he quit Facebook after he had made lots of money from it. And then his heroic act was to then give, I think uh, he gave 50 million to Signal, which is an app that was founded on the principle of um, actually being truly secure, Signal does not store any metadata about you. And mm -hmm. so the only information they have is this phone number exists as a Signal account. That's the only information they have about you. And so that's when Jan Kum said, oh, yes, that's a good idea. We should do that. But he could never pay back that vision debt. So the idea is, you know, it's really a question for you in terms of, one, how much vision debt are you taking on, keeping track of that? And two... What is okay with you? Like, if this is a product that you can never take back what you have done, are you okay with it? So I think this comes to a question of, you know, your personal vision and what's the trade-off between vision and survival that you personally want to make and knowing that you are over time making these choices, right? That's really important for us to realize. And in the case of, uh, of uh, uh, Yen, you said... The name mm -hmm. of the yeah in the case of Yen. So uh, let's think backwards. <laughs> One of the good decisions that he could have made was uh, in the time of uh, storing that metadata to uh, for the survival of WhatsApp, it could have taken that decision. But then, uh, after uh, guaranteeing the survival, he could also have deleted that information. And it's true. Yeah. And maybe never sold a WhatsApp to, to Facebook, but uh, have now a company that uh, was still running. <laughs> See, that's a very interesting point, right? He said all along for a very long time that he would never sell uh, to Facebook or he would never sell the company. It was what he mm -hmm. said for a very long time. But that's the thing, right? Like circumstances change. And mm -hmm. sometimes we look at ethics as, you know, we will make we'll make the right decision when the time comes. We give ourselves that, I think, um, because we never want to, we don't honestly want to make bad decisions or like we don't want to harm, right? And so we always believe that we will make the right choice when the time comes. But mm -hmm. I think that's really hard to do sometimes, you know, like uh, as a human, of course, like for him, the 19 billion offer in front of him, you know, could I have declined that? I don't know. That would have been a hard choice yes. to have declined that 19 billion. I don't, I think this requirement of heroism at every step is actually much harder to do than baking ethics into every step of what you do. Exactly. Like, I think that's why in the radical product thinking approach, Rather than heroism and making those grandiose decisions, I advocate for making those little decisions at every step of the way um, and how you bake ethics into every aspect of your product, your vision, your strategy, your priorities, how you measure success. Yeah, 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 because otherwise you are just digging a, a hole that you are in and uh, then 
you can always, I think I, I have this uh, optimistic view that you can always uh, revert back and uh, to uh, other actions in the, the in a different directions from the your past actions, but it gets way harder, especially when you have uh, an offer of uh, 19 billion in front of you. Uh, yeah. But this uh, example of WhatsApp reminds me also the example uh, that some people say of, uh, well, I can't really uh, quit my job or find a new thing because I am uh, I am the, with the golden handcuffs, which means like I, I am receiving a good salary. So uh, on my free time, I am doing volunteering or I am uh, donating, donating my money uh, to some social organization. And this is similar to, to what uh, Yan did after selling WhatsApp for 19 billion. He goes and found and finally founds the company that he wanted to found in the first place. Yeah, right. Exactly. So a lot. Of, uh, he funded Signal with fifty uh, million. He he didn't found it, by the way. Um, but um, you're exactly right that you know we often feel like I have no choice in terms of what job I have. But yeah, I'll either volunteer or I'll donate to a charity. I think one really important realization, right, is that. Uh, there are many more businesses than charities, like many more for-profit businesses than charity. And the amount, the effect that businesses have on society is actually far larger than charities will ever have. And so this idea that, you know, I will cause harm with, or I may cause harm with work, but then I'll donate to charity, it it helps us kind of wash our conscience. But if that's the approach, right, one important question to ask ourselves is, if you're feeling this need to wash your conscience, maybe it is helpful uh, to just even look at this vision versus survival for yourself and think about what do you need for survival? And, you know, very often, like, um, I have this friend who works at a big company and he's been saying for a while that, oh, you know, I feel my, like my job is soul-sucking, uh, and so he volunteers in so many different places and mm -hmm. he volunteers for Samaritans and so on. But, you know, in the end, it, he finds it really hard to look for a job elsewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one thing we want to ask ourselves is, are we taking that approach? And honestly, there is really no judgment because there are so many things in each of our lives that we cannot possibly judge someone for what decisions they are needing to make. Like perhaps, you know, just the things that you have going on in life right now, you can't, you just don't have the bandwidth to switch jobs. And that's the reality of it. So no judgment, right? And so the point is, if there are no right answers, all you have is the right questions. What is important is to ask yourself those right questions mm -hmm. so that you can Think about what is what is it that you want for yourself. That in itself makes things less soul-sucking for you. <laughs> and when the time comes, you're able to make the decision that would make you happier. Because I, I really do believe that uh, overall, we want to make a positive contribution to society. Like, exactly. you know, we, we want to be remembered, at least not for having done bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I really like that idea of using also radical power thinking for our own uh, life decisions. Um, but uh, let, let's bring back again the conversation to, to the business world. And um, 
uh, I wanted to ask you um, if you could give uh, uh, some examples of situations that the PM could uh, face in their daily jobs uh, regarding uh, ethics and uh, decision making um, related to ethics. Yeah, uh, a great question. So the kinds of questions or decisions that you might be asked to make uh, as a product person, right? Um, very often it's about collecting data that, you know, there's this temptation to collect all kinds of data because we can. And we always think that we won't use that data in a, in a bad way. Uh, and that's, of course, true. Like you personally have no desire to use this data in a bad way. But just the very fact that we collect this data sometimes might mean that it could potentially be used by someone else, even a company that acquires you for doing bad things. Um, one example of this is, you know, uh, just data on uh, through Google Maps or, you know, driving um, direction, companies that provide driving directions, right? Like that data has been used to figure out which woman traveled outside of their state to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, or, yes, and now that abortion has become illegal in many states in the U.S., this has been used by, uh, yeah, to find out, you know, whom to go after, Uh, because they pursued an abortion. Uh, another such example, uh, like there are many examples, right, where data wasn't originally connect collected with a bad intention, but then it could be used for bad. Um, so whenever you're collecting data, one question you could ask yourself is, do we absolutely need this data? And we could take vision debt by collecting this data, but then, you know, don't do a good job of anonymizing because that takes a lot of effort. So then the next question is, okay, you know, instead of just collecting data, can you also like not collect it unless you've also released this ability to anonymize it to a level that truly it cannot harm someone, right? And so those are the kinds of decisions that you can make as a product manager. Um, another example would be when it comes to pricing strategy. So, you know, one of the things that we as product people, of course, want is a subscription model. But, you know, while a subscription model is attractive from a monetization perspective, one of the risks with that is it affects different people in society differently because people, of course, forget to cancel subscriptions. So people who are on a lower income level, you know, subscriptions affect them in a much worse way. So thinking about, you know, even subscription model as a form of vision debt and realizing that, yes, we are taking that on, But, you know, being thoughtful about that, right? Again, this goes to the idea that there are no right answers. It's mm -hmm. just asking yourself the right question um, at every possible time. Like every time there is a desire that you have to include any hook in your product where you're trying to increase customer um, engagement or keeping their attention on your page, like every single, you know, variable reward badge that you include, all of these are little pieces of vision debt that you take on. There is no one decision that is bad per se, But the question you just ask yourself is, in what way are you contributing to digital pollution? I think, mm -hmm. uh, and digital pollution, by the way, is the term that I had uh, coined to uh, equate it to uh, environmental pollution. Just like we create an environmental pollution with the industrial boom, with all of our digital decisions, we are creating 
digital pollution. That's not to say that uh, creating hooks in the product, it's a bad thing uh, per se, because if, let's say, I think products uh, often are, are good, but in the case of uh, Facebook, the idea, the vision or mission initially was to create a world uh, connected, open and connected. Uh, and then, that, I mean, there are so many roads that you can take and they decided to go to the road of creating many hooks inside the product to make people uh, stay there and they um, ended up with uh, value uh, the posts that are the more um, polarized ones. And well, it's open and connected, but with flog garbage. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. I think, and, and your point, right, is when we write a vision, I think this is one of those cases where you can also think about ethics in your vision. You know, we often have vision statements, just like you said, about open and connected. You know, that was Facebook's vision, but it doesn't actually talk about what is the world that we they wanted to create. Like, what does an open and connected world look like? What's mm -hmm. the problem that we're setting out to solve. And why should you even solve this problem? Like, why does the world need to be open and connected? It doesn't necessarily mean it's a better world, right? Um, and I think, so an ethical vision has to really explain whose world are you changing? What is the problem? Why must it be solved? Because maybe it doesn't need to be. Uh, and unless we can specify, like, what is wrong with status quo, we shouldn't disrupt just for the sake of it. We have to be able to describe, you know, when will you say mission accomplished because you see that problem solved? And then finally, how will you bring this world about through your product? And so instead of having a vision that uh, that is just about being big, we talk about the problem, the reason it needs to be solved and mm -hmm. what it uh, what the world looks like. And this is the radical product thinking approach to a vision where there's a fill in the blank statement so that you actually answer these profound questions as opposed to just, you know, mm -hmm. trying to be big. Yes. And when you have that vision, then you can move on to the strategy and uh, uh, every opportunity that you are uh, this. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase this. So when you have that vision with you and then you can move to your strategy, you um, are then prioritizing uh, some opportunities. And in that part is when you can also think per opportunity on the ethics uh, or, and the, uh, asking the right questions regarding who is this impacting, what possible arms may this decision come uh, generate um, and answering those, those questions in each action. So you are also advocating to have ethics on the bigger picture and ethics on the smaller picture, on the small decisions. Exactly. I think to your point, right, uh, in terms of baking ethics into every step of your product, mm -hmm. once you have this detailed vision, then you have a detailed strategy. And to talk about the radical product thinking approach to strategy, um, it's an RDCL strategy that you want to create. So the mnemonic radical or RDCL stands for R for real pain points. And this is where we ask the question, you know, who has this pain and what exactly is their pain? So when you think about these personas and what is their real pain point, you know, we would tend to think about just a few kinds of personas, but this is where you can expand your thinking and say, okay, I want to make sure that I am addressing, you know, what does this world look like for marginalized society? You know, are mm -hmm. there people who are marginalized that my product is going to affect differently? So I'll give you the example of a checking account. 
if you charge a fee for your checking account where, you know, let's say you have to have a thousand dollar balance, otherwise the checking account charges you five dollars. Well, if you think about the marginalized personas, if they have lower income, you're actually charging them versus the people who can afford the fees, you're not charging them. So that's an example of how your product affects different personas differently. And an equitable product and thinking about equity means thinking through those personas. The next step is the D for design. So meaning what does the solution look like um, for those pains? And again, this is where you can think about the solution and how it affects these different personas differently. The C for capabilities is, you know, your underlying infrastructure, your IP, uh, perhaps your partnerships, um, all of this, right, is where you can think about, are you creating win-win solutions? You can think about your suppliers even. You know, if I think about uh, companies like Patagonia, they, uh, if you're thinking about fair trade and doing the right thing for the environment as well as um, for for workers, etc. This is where you can think about your underlying capabilities, both in terms of IP and partnerships, and think about win-win solutions. Mm-hmm. And then the last, you know, the L for logistics. This is where we think about our pricing, business models, sales channels, etc. Uh, and this is where we can say, you know, in terms of our pricing model, you know, are we taking a predatory approach? Are we taking a colonialist model? Uh, If I think about Facebook, it's a free product, right? And yet it has a colonialist approach where, you know, Facebook in many countries in Africa, they went and installed Wi-Fi. So on the one hand, hey, you're providing a service of Wi-Fi, but it's a colonialist model because now though that is a captive audience, you've given them Wi-Fi service, but you're putting them on Facebook, And now it spreads misinformation. And very often you're not spending enough money on curbing misinformation in those countries, Mm -hmm. but you've given them Wi-Fi. And so it's a colonialist model where you're extracting dollars through uh, ad revenues, et cetera, from there, but you're not necessarily reinvesting there. And again, like then we can go back again to, to where we started this conversation that is Facebook has no interest in solving those problems so the only person that uh, can actually do something about this are the persons that design are the person that do the product product managers are the person that code it are everyone that is in the in the product team exactly and you as a product person can take that power and do something with it by being vision driven mm-hmm. and that power to be vision driven right It's not just something that you're doing only for ethical purposes. One of the benefits for you in taking this vision-driven approach of having this clarity of vision, strategy, how you trade off vision versus survival, every element of this approach helps you become a better leader because one, you're thinking through these problems at greater depth than a lot of other people. But two, you're able to communicate your thinking to teams and you'll find that you have so much more loyalty from your teams that you create. People respect you more as a leader, you know, regardless of whether you use this for ethics or not, your ability to think deeply and communicate vision, strategy, how you trade off long term versus short term, all of that makes you a better leader. So you can use this vision driven approach to level up as a leader. Mm-hmm. 
Amazing. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Radhika, we have, we have uh, talked now for a while and uh, I think it was a very interesting conversation. Is there any wrapping up thoughts that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think the one thought I want to share is, you know, all of this ethics doesn't mean that you have to be altruistic, right? Because I think that is often the confusion that we have because, you know, we want to be ethical, but in the context of being a for-profit company, And so the question is, how do you do that, right? Like ethics doesn't have to conflict with making a profit when you're being vision driven. And so the example that I want to give is a positive example uh, of a company that has done really well for itself uh, in the gaming industry. So there's this game called uh, No Man's Sky. It's by Hello Games. And, you know, my son and my husband actually play this together a lot. Uh, and I've been so amazed by the you know, vision-driven approach that this game company has taken. So this game, it actually came out in 2016. So that was a while ago, right? And it's been one of the most played games on Steam for years. So actually, when the game came out, there was so much hype around it um, that the company, you know, They, they really didn't deliver on that hype at the very beginning when, the, when it came out. And people were so angry. And uh, the developers even received death threats. And it was about as bad as it got. It was, it was really bad for them. But they stuck with it. And they had a vision for it, right? And this vision that they had was that they wanted to create a game where you could explore the universe in this very meditative way. Where, you know, there's this loneliness about exploring the universe and different planets where you're alone, but you could potentially run into someone else. Uh, and so they wanted to create this meditative game that felt kind of calming where you were exploring. And this was this escapism and immersion into an alternate set of worlds. And so they were true to that vision, right? And they created so many improvements. Now, today, right, it is a game where you can collaborate with others. Um, and what is really impressive to me is where everyone monetizes and focuses on monetization by constantly getting you to, you know, spend real life money to buy game upgrades and this and that. The game does not do that. Everyone actually starts out on an equal playing field um, and then you gain money over time through your hard work and like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing all of these different explorations and expeditions, etc. It's a really well-designed game. It's collaborative. Like there's no reason to like compete with others. Um, and they've been true to this vision and they've created a game that has been a best-selling game for many years now. And so that is a positive example that we can learn from and say, you know, we can measure success and, uh, you know, not just by customer engagement in terms of like, you know, how long can I keep you hooked? Although they've kind of done that naturally, like people are hooked, but not in a bad way. They mm -hmm. find it as a, they find it to be a meditative, like relaxing game, right? Yes. And so there are good ways and bad ways to do it. And you, as a product person, when you're vision driven, you really take the power to do good things um, through your products um, and, and do something meaningful for yourself. Okay, uh, yeah, I'll check that out, uh, that game. <laughs> sounds, sounds very interesting. Uh, Radhika, we are closing now our conversation. Um, where can people uh, learn more about radical product thinking? 
so there's the Radical Product Thinking book, which is in Amazon and other bookstores. Um, you can also message me on LinkedIn. I always love to hear how people are creating change uh, using Radical Product Thinking. Uh, and people can also get the free toolkit, the free Radical Product Thinking toolkit on RadicalProduct.com. So I love talking to you. Thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. Thank you so much for coming. I always love our conversations. Uh, always uh, very good thoughts on these ones. And uh, um, I hope people feel inspired by this conversation. And thank you always for the insightful questions, Margarita. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.